Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm here as usual with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Sarah, I'm back in the studio broom cupboard, which I have been sharing with rolls of wrapping paper over the last few weeks. And it keeps reminding me of all the presents I haven't wrapped or even bought yet. Tell me about it. I can't actually wrap anything until the very last second in this house because I've got a dog that's so keen on unwrapping things. So she just rips all the paper off and tears it into shreds. So I just end up wrapping and then rewrapping and hoovering and it's just a nightmare. Oh dear, hoovering. Certainly don't want that right now. Anyway, well, the stats do show, don't they, Sarah, that most people have been buying a lot earlier this year than usual. We're going to be taking a temperature check on the retail sector in this episode with a big focus on luxury brands as people might trade up to treat themselves at Christmas in an episode we're calling The Festive State of Lux. That's right. And our senior equity analyst, Sophie Lanyates, will be giving her insight into how some of the biggest brands in the market are varying. And we are very pleased to welcome someone who is really tapped into the business of Christmas. That's Matt Grist, who's the managing director of the Ministry of Fun, which trains Santas all over the world to stand in for the big man himself. No pressure there, Matt. No pressure at all. It's a privilege. We just should stress, though, from the off that it is only on those very rare occasions when the great man can't be there in person. But when you, Susanna, go and see him, it will indeed be the real Santa. Good to hear it. Yeah, don't you worry. And we'll be hearing from Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She'll be speaking to Mark Nichols, who's manager of the Jupiter European Fund, about the enduring appeal of luxury goods. Looking forward to that. And it was really interesting to see what happened on Singles Day in China, which is a major shopping extravaganza at the start of November, officially launched to celebrate singles as an antidote to Valentine's Day. But actually, it's just another big marketing drive offering discounts to shoppers. But Singles Day is quite a closely watched gauge of consumer confidence in China. And this year, the event clocked up the slowest pace of growth since it was adopted by the Chinese tech and e-commerce giant Alibaba a decade ago. But even so, $84 billion worth of goods were shifted and sales still rose by just under a tenth. So not the eye-watering pace of the year before, but still pretty impressive. Absolutely. And although we don't have Singles Day in the UK, we have well and truly adopted Black Friday, which started life as that US shopping event. And they're pretty brisk sales this year, which really helped boost the overall sales in November. So the British Retail Consortium figures, they sort of showed quite a big growth and discounted clothes in particular really ramped up sales. So it's hard to know whether it was all sort of sparkly party wear or massive coats or possibly a bit of both. But one of the major trends we've seen this Black Friday is the ongoing boom of buy now, pay later. So that's the likes of Klarna and ClearPay, which split payments into a number of instalments. So you don't pay any interest on these debts because retailers pay to use the services of these companies instead. And Citizen Advice found that almost one in 10 people plan to use buy now, pay later this Christmas. And that's after the market almost quadrupled last year. And figures from Klarna itself showed that use of its services was significantly higher this Black Friday than last. So on the one hand, if you only borrow what you can afford for things you really need and you repay on time, it can be a cheaper way to do it than sort of traditional borrowing like credit cards or or dipping into your overdraft. 
But on the other hand, there are worries that people might spend more than they would without these payment options on things they might not really need and rack up debts they can't afford and and don't actually understand. And hasn't the Financial Conduct Authority been looking into this? They appear to be pretty concerned about the rapid spread of buy now, pay later. That's right. So the FCA, that's the regulator, they looked into the sector last year and they found when the buy now, pay later companies are persuading retailers to put them on their websites, they do it by explaining how much they can increase sales. So we know it does make people more likely to buy. And that's partly because if you sort of split things up into instalments, people don't actually look at the overall cost so much. They tend to focus on the size of the first instalment. And also part of the issue is that because the way these are positioned on people's websites, sometimes they just don't even realise they're taking on debts. So the study done by the FCA discovered that the amount borrowed is around £70 per time. But actually the basic credit assessments associated with this kind of borrowing means that you can take on a huge number of them without sort of sitting down and really thinking about what it's going to cost you overall. It means it's far easier for you to borrow more than you can afford. In some cases, it's on top of other debt as well. So one bank told the FCA that one in 10 of their customers who used Buy Now Pay Later were also over their overdraft limit. So it's worrying to see the sort of debt on top of debt. Yeah, that is a big figure. And it's interesting because I've been looking at some of the other numbers and one of the areas where we've been really prepared to splash the cash is on little luxuries in our trolleys. Now, this is according to Kantar. Grocery spending in the 12 months to the start of December was higher than in 2019, though it was a little lower than last year, of course, when England was in its second pandemic lockdown in November, even though the price of Christmas dinner is going up. So, Sarah, I've got a little taster for our quiz later. What is your bet on just how much the average meal for four will cost us this Christmas? I've got really hungry teenagers in my family, so it costs us a small fortune. So I'll say... 30 quid. Yeah, it's actually £27.48. So you clearly do have hungry teenagers adding a few extra quid. And now that £27.48 is up from last year, driven by gravy, cauliflower and Christmas puddings. The price of those going up. But overall, UK grocery prices rose faster in the past four weeks than any time since June 2020. It's funny, isn't it? Because online grocery orders really fell sort of fairly steeply when you sort of compare it to last year when we're in those regional lockdowns. But of course, the new variant, the Omicron variant, makes it likely that more people might go back online. So we could see those figures rise again, couldn't we? Absolutely. Now, overall online sales were down by around a fifth in November. Not a surprise, I suppose, compared to a year earlier when many bricks and mortar stores were closed due to lockdowns, which forced lots of people to order from the sofa instead. But still, we are buying a lot more online than we were in 2019. It's a fifth higher than pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, I know I, for one, I'm just not ready to let go of shopping on the sofa just yet. The other side is that high streets in particular are finding it really tough. So Springboard is the company that measures footfall across retail. And they looked at Black Friday figures and found there were fewer people on high streets than any other time since that shopping event began. And instead, shoppers were much more likely to go to things like retail parks and shopping centres. Well, perhaps that was partly due to the lure of Santa Claus. Lots of grottos in retail parks and shopping centres. We hear so much that it's the shopping experience that counts after all. So let me bring back in Matt Grist from the Ministry of Fun. You're the managing director. That sounds a pretty tall order for a job title, the Ministry of Fun. And you must have had quite a strange couple of years since the the pandemic hit. I understand then you've branched down to some more remote Santa visits. 
That's absolutely right. Yeah, the areas that we work in cross some of those that have been the hardest hit, really, the hospitality and leisure industries and entertainment. So it has been a, a challenging 18 months or so, as it has for many, many others. But Santa becomes a major part of our lives in the run-up to Christmas. It, it's very busy. And, and last year, with the uncertainty that was around in between lockdowns and live events in general, we turned our attention to delivering the experiences online with a device called Santa HQ, where Santa who was not particularly au fait with technology, but he learnt quick and was able to zoom direct into people's homes from his home in the North Pole and have what would be a traditional grotto experience, but direct into people's homes. So can you still do that? Is there still demand for Santa on Zoom this year? Or do you think you've really seen the comeback of Santa in grottos uh, right across the retail landscape? Well, both is the truth, actually. We weren't sure, because obviously the planning for Christmas starts some months ahead and you don't quite know what the environment's going to be and what the situation's going to be or, or the appetite. But certainly after a, a challenging Christmas, shall we say, universally, commercially, but also personally for lots of people, the appetite for Christmas and for festivity and for a bit of magic is there and stronger than ever. So this year we're finding a lot of the live events are back, but also there is a demand for online. It was a happy accident, really. I think Dyla Santa type experiences have been around for a while, but they really did take off last year through necessity. But also I think what people discovered was that it really can be a, a truly magical way to meet Santa and they don't have to queue, they don't have to stand in the cold, etc. And that Actually, one of the really interesting findings was that the children tended to be a lot more relaxed and comfortable, mainly, I think, because they were in the familiar surroundings of their own home. So they were relaxed. You didn't get the shyness to the same degree that you sometimes do get in live experiences. And they did the most wonderful things, like show you the chimney that they want Santa to come down or where they want the presents leaving. It was really a, a personal and magical experience. And I think that's why the demand for it has been retained this year, whilst lives are, uh, have come back as well. I've had my fair share of those, the tears, the fear of meeting. And it is quite intimidating. Santa can be intimidating for a a three-year-old in particular. I think the thought of it can. And I think sometimes inadvertently parents put quite a bit of pressure on the kids because they tell them while they're queuing or on the way in the car that, you know, remember to tell him this, remember to tell him this. So when they finally get there in front of him, they can be a bit starstruck. I suppose we should remember that Santa is the first celebrity that children meet, really, before they meet any actors and actresses and pop stars, etc. They've heard about Santa and they've seen pictures of him and photos of him on the telly and things. And then suddenly they meet him and he's the first magical wonderful famous person that they meet so it's inevitable they get a bit starstruck but yeah online that seems to be less so and he seems to just be their friend their dear old friend who they're having a little chat with and and sharing their excitement for the season so when the children meet santa are there a sort of common present request or are there any sort of particularly unusual ones absolutely varies and when we train Santas we we sort of have to prepare them to expect anything. There are predictable brands that come back every year and are always in demand but it's interesting the curveball things that children can come out with actually very very simple traditional things like trains and bikes and skateboards and colouring pens. I think rather than especially with the younger children rather than a specific present it's just the excitement of the whole season. You do get some very interesting ones but um, Go on tell us you know, some, go on. Somebody wants Well somebody once said Santa asked them what they wanted particularly for Christmas and they said egg on toast. Um, do you know what my daughter asked for last is, year? Know, 100 packets of quavers 
You should have seen how they all came down the chimney. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. If it's something Santa can deliver, then I'm sure he would. But that's what I mean, you see, that it doesn't have to have high value. And I think that's one of the other things about when we delivered Santa experiences is that obviously Christmas is a very commercial time, inevitably. But what families want, regardless of their spending capacity, is they just want to have a loving, wonderful time. And one of the things actually we have to make sure that Santa knows is that when you visit him either online or in a shopping centre or a grotto in a department store is that he can't promise. He can't promise that what the child asks for that he can bring because he obviously has no way of knowing that the family have the capacity or intention to deliver that present. Pets you get asked for a lot. Dogs and cats and ponies and things like that which Santa sometimes struggles to, um, to deliver because it's hard to get them on the sleigh. They frighten the reindeer sometimes. So do you have any sense, Matt, of... of... No, none at all. <laughs> Okay. Do you have any sense of just how much the high street has been affected compared to shopping centres? Are there bigger queues at shopping centres and retail parks than, say, the high street? Because that's been the trend over the pandemic. Yes, I think so. I think there are bigger queues than there were, but a lot of the Santa appearances now and the Santa experiences are booked. A lot of them are, are bookable in advance rather than you pitch up and join a queue, which is only a good thing. I mean, I remember when we started doing this, sometimes you'd have a sign that said, two hours from here to meet Santa, and you're like, oh, your heart would drop. But it tends to be pre-booked now, so people know what time they're going to go in and see him, which is probably one good thing. But I think when it comes to retail, two things happen sometimes in conflict. One is that they struggle to give over retail space, shop floor space, to a grotto in the conventional sense because it's valuable shop floor space. The flip of that is they use the fact that they have a Santa in store to draw people in. So both things seem to be true in, in different ways for different places. Do you have any difficulty recruiting Santas this year because of the labour shortage? Are there fewer people who want to come in as a stand-in replacement for the big man himself? Yes, is the short answer, but not really because of the labour shortage, but I think because the vast majority of people that help Santa out on those rare occasions when he's not there in person are actors and performers of some kind, and that is an industry, as you know, that has had a particularly challenging time this past few months and a lot of them have turned to muggle jobs, jobs to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, etc. And what's quite tricky for those individuals is to drop those jobs for six, seven weeks in the run-up to Christmas because, of course, they've got the fear that January's coming because the industry is by no means back and by no means secure. So a lot of the conventional work they'd get in TV and theatre, etc., just isn't there. So we have had a, a challenge in that department in that some of our regular performers have struggled to be available. But likewise, we've had other performers who have never turned their hand to Santa before who are very keen and have been very keen to learn the ropes. It tends to be people with a performance background. And in terms of what you look for when you're, you're hiring someone to, to stand in for Santa briefly... What sort of thing are you looking for? Well, physicality matters. Santa can take many different shapes and sizes and, and certainly can have many different accents and appearances. But generally speaking, I think we imagine him to, what should we say, should be a, to be a comfortable chap, <laughs> both in years and in size. But more important than that, really, is just the ability to listen. There's no right way to be Santa, but there are many, many wrong ways. So it's the ability to listen and improvise and go with it because children are 
the most wonderful audience. They really are the most rewarding and wonderful audience, but also a really tough audience. So you really have to be prepared for anything and go with the conversation. And we give them lots of tools in order to be able to handle an encounter and keep it magical and keep that genuine belief that that child is in front of the real man. But children are unpredictable, so they can go, as you've said, about the 100 packets of quavers. You wouldn't predict that one to be a real request. So you've got to be prepared for those sort of responses and just keep the world and the magic alive. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for speaking to us. I really never knew what a serious business fun was. Particularly interested in actually hiring one of those real-life elves for my house rather than one of those slightly annoying elves on the shelves. Thank you, Matt, uh, for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, it's interesting that people really do seem keen to treat themselves in particular at this Christmas, as Matt was telling us, and really splash out on luxuries. Well, Sophie Lund-Yates, a senior equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is with us, and you've been looking into this. Sophie, clearly luxury is associated with Christmas, but it's also a really interesting proposition at times of rising prices, isn't it? Hi, Susanna. Yes. Um, and firstly, can I just say, how on earth am I supposed to follow the Ministry of Fun? Never has anything that I've got to say going to seem um, <laughs> so mundane. Um, also, I really want some quavers now, so I know what I'll be doing as soon as we're we're done here. But bringing it back to the muggle world of companies and, and the markets, Luxury is a really interesting sector to look at when prices are rising. So we're in this inflationary environment at the moment, as you've mentioned. And the reason for that is that luxury goods tend to be more resilient in that environment because their customers, their super wealthy customers, just aren't as sensitive to knocks in discretionary spending in the same way that more kind of middle of the road brands might be. One of the most famous listed names um, in the UK is Burberry, which has just come an enormously long way. You know, it's famous for that checked pattern that was kind of rife in the noughties and it's doing really well and sales are pretty much actually back to pre-pandemic levels which is really impressive and that is despite a continued reduction in long-haul tourists which actually typically make up quite a lot of Burberry's business so for example a lot of Asian tourists would account for a, a reasonable chunk of sales in the headline boutiques in the likes of Paris and London so what we're seeing is some of that missing spending is actually translating to increased shopping in home markets instead and you know we had been kind of concerned that that wouldn't necessarily happen um, so that's been good to see and a lot of the sales success is actually down to the strategy introduced by former CEO Marco Gabetti which was to consolidate Burberry's position at the very top of the value chain so all that means really is that it's centered around making the brand even more exclusive so things like cutting ties with non-luxury partners reducing outlet activity which really broke my heart and stopping in-store discounts as well. So digital channels and stores themselves are also getting some serious, serious TLC. The pivot also, so that kind of strategic change makes a lot of sense from a brand protection point of view, but it should also boost margins in the long run. That makes sense. If you're charging more per item, that should help your margins. And essentially, it's a strategy that I really admire. Although I will have to caveat all of that with the fact that it comes as no surprise to hear that with COVID variants on the rise, and there's still so much uncertainty going on, um, it is quite tough to know exactly what trading and, and demand is going to look like in the coming months, unfortunately.
It certainly is, certainly with travel so disrupted. Now, we can't talk about luxury giants without talking about LVMH, which is responsible for brands including Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Celine, Sephora, and then premium drinks like Moe, Hennessy, for example. So what are the prospects looking like here? LVMH is truly a conglomerate. Um, You know, it had revenues of over 44 billion euros in the first nine months of the financial year. So that's just a number. It's quite hard to actually wrap your head around how much that is in sales. Um, And that is in large part thanks to the more resilient nature of those high net worth customers as I was mentioning earlier. What's even more remarkable when you think about the likes of Louis Vuitton, Dior is that those brands make the kind of clothes that are absolutely meant to be seen. So that resilience has been really quite impressive, although it hasn't been completely unscathed, of course, but on the whole, the picture has been better than we expected. Just completely fantastic management is a serious asset. The group has Bernard Arnault, who's been the CEO for the best part of five decades to thank for that. Um, He's also the group's largest shareholder, which really, when you think about it, explains the focus on long-term success. But again, unfortunately, that is not to say that LVMH is, is home and dry. The group also relies pretty heavily on international travel. So that's kind of both in physical airports themselves and those tourists splashing money while they're abroad. But like I was saying with Burberry, and it's very unclear when this side of trading is expected to normalise. And it, until that does happen, it, it simply will act as a drag. Debt is also a source of concern for LVMH. And that's before counting the 14 billion plus euros that the group owes in store leases. And the root cause of that kind of balance sheet stretch was the acquisition of jewellery giant Tiffany. To be completely fair, that deal does seem to be bearing fruit. But I would like a kind of a longer run of positive numbers before giving a firmer opinion on that acquisition. But either way, debt reduction is is likely to be a focus in, in the short term relief at LVMH. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Sophie, thank you very much for that. You can go off and eat some crisps now. Thank goodness. (laughs) Now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been speaking to Mark Nichols, Manager of the Jupiter European Fund, about the enduring appeal of luxury goods. Hi, Mark. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. So Christmas is coming, which means we're talking about stuff that would be nice to find in one's stocking, luxury goods, and a subject that I know is close to your portfolio's heart, premium drinks brands, and hopefully may feature on some people's Christmas tables this season. If we start with luxury goods, what's the attraction for you? In some cases, in terms of luxury goods, of course, you've got brands that have been around for centuries quick glance at LVMH's portfolio, for example, will highlight that they have brands dating back to the 14th century. So we're not talking about brands that have suddenly just become very popular and maybe no one wants the products next year. These are enduring brands that confer to the products under them a degree of prestige, which of course, then has this resonance with consumers across the ages, across centuries. And as an investor, Why is that attractive? Because it basically gives you pricing power. The speedy bag from Louis Vuitton, for example, be one of the the most familiar silhouettes to anyone who's acquainted with the handbag market, has had annualised price increases of 5% for 40 years now. So that's clearly a compelling proposition in terms of value creation and cash flow generation and a clear demonstration of the strength that luxury goods brands have. And this concept of an economic moat, a competitive advantage over peers that gives you that pricing power, that doesn't just apply to things like fashion and leather goods, does it? It can also apply to booze. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if you take a category like Irish whiskey, for example, it can be hugely dominated by a single brand. So Jameson, uh, Pernod Ricard brand accounts for about 70% of all the Irish whiskey on sale in the marketplace. And I suppose most people would understand the triple distilled, the core brand. But what the company does, and, and the reason it again becomes a compelling proposition, is that they invest and they create new brand halo opportunities around that core brand. So Jameson Black Barrel, for anyone that's acquainted with the product, the highly limited edition products that they produce, such as the Oak Barrel product, which I'm assured by the CEO is extremely hard to get hold of, but worthwhile if you're interested in that sort of thing. And so you can take a brand, invest in it very heavily, dominate your category and create this kind of virtuous or perpetual cycle over a long period of time. When it falls down, of course, is when uh, companies or brands are underinvested. And so it's not enough to just say the brand magically appears and has this resonance. It is a carefully thought out investment program over many, many years that creates a certain perception of the brand that then endures as the product evolves, as it continues to be invested in over a long period of time. And that's a really interesting point about keeping things relevant and compelling and open to new markets, whilst also keeping that sort of secret source. Staying then in kind of premium drinks brands, is it fair to say that the appeal was predominantly Europe in the past, but it's much more global in nature now? Premium drinks is without doubt a global and increasingly globalising opportunity. The nice thing about Europe and North America for companies with premium products is that you have these large pools of very wealthy consumers. But of course, what's happening is that you're getting emerging wealth in other parts of the world. And so, when, again, when you look at a company like Pernod Ricard, uh, where the disclosure on this sort of thing is very clear, their three biggest markets are the USA, China and India. And in each of those markets, they play in categories where you can premiumize within the product range. So upscaling purchasing within the whiskey category in India is the key job for the company. And then doing the same thing and using the pricing ladder in Cognac is the key objective in the Chinese market. And those product categories, those drinks have been consumed in those markets for a long period of time. So again, it's not a flash in the pan. But as the wealth increases, people will be familiar in Cognac, you, you walk people from the, the basic product, the VS, up to the VSOP product, and then the aspirational XO and beyond categories. And for a company like Remy Cointreau, there's the Louis Trez Cognac. It's about $3,000 a bottle. So this is not something you, um, you drink on a night out. It's to be enjoyed slowly, and generally it's either a, a very nice gift or something to be treasured uh, on the odd occasion it's consumed. That product is very hard to compete with. You think about the ageing process. It's very difficult to produce that product, and it's impossible to produce it as a startup or, or a disruptive entrant into a category. So you can start to understand the enduring appeal. And then it accounts for a significant amount of the profits of the company, which then get reinvested in building up newer stocks of the product. So you can see why these companies can access a global opportunity and why it can be self-fulfilling or something of a virtuous cycle. And in terms of investor access to this space, you've mentioned there Pernod Ricard, Remy Cointreau. I know in the past that you've invested in Campari, another listed stock. Are those the kind of big hitters or are there others that are interesting you? 
So at the moment, we have investments in LVMH, which is the majority owner of the Moe Hennessy portfolio of brands. They are skewed towards premium wines and champagnes. So things like Dom Perignon, Crew doing very, very well. Uh, Verve Clicquot sits in that portfolio. Diageo, we aren't invested in at the moment, but that is the minority owner of that Moe Hennessy stake and also of course is the global leader in spirits overall and has some distinctive brands such as Smirnoff that people would be familiar with. The key investments for us are, are Pernod Ricard, uh, Campari and Remy and each of them for slightly different reasons so the strategies are slightly different at each of them but they all have two things in common. One is a growing opportunity so the value of the global spirits market is increasing Contrast that with global beer markets, where it's a much tougher picture. So it's not just a question of alcohol. It's being in the right parts of the value chain in the right categories. But each of those three businesses also benefits from an owner-operator mindset, as is also true at LVMH. So they are brands and products that are managed with the very long-term development and value creation from those brands at the core of everything the companies do. Mark, thank you very much and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Well, that was Emma Wall there talking to Mark Nichols, manager of the Jupiter European Fund. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And this time, Susanna tells me she's been looking into the art of Christmas present buying. Yes, so... In a survey of the worst presents people had received, what do you think people thought was the worst present? A mop and a bucket, awful perfume or a diet book? Oh my goodness, they'd all be pretty horrible. Who on earth's buying mops for Christmas? Oh, it has to be the mop. Well, apparently not. People were more upset with horrible perfume, although I certainly would not be happy with a mop. The top of the list, though, was a dead plant. And you really do wonder who on earth... People are giving those too. What is the worst present you've ever received though, Sarah? Well, I'm not that choosy when it comes to presents really, but, but there was one year when my kids, um, they got given some sticker books, but unfortunately they were like second-hand sticker books, so all the stickers had already been stuck in. That was a bit awkward. Oh, that's not great. Bit of a difficult thank you letter to write there. Next question. The same survey suggested that some people ended up throwing away their unwanted gifts, but how many out of five said they'd done this. I have to admit, I did throw those sticker books away, but that was a fairly extreme example. And I can't imagine many people doing it because people aren't as bad as I am. So I'd say one in five. It's actually two in five, which doesn't sound completely great for the planet, which is probably why you've got those used sticker books. Now, for the next (laughs) question, I went back in time to the year you were born, which was 1974, and found the most popular game of the year. Have you got any idea what that was? Oh, gosh. Well, in my family, I guess Christmas was all about epic games of Monopoly with my sister. But that wasn't until quite a few years after 1974. So I don't really know, but but I'll say Monopoly. It was Connect Four. Oh, of course. Oh, God, we played that for hours as well. It's really, it's amazing what we had to do for entertainment before computers. Certainly is. And finally, Sarah, another piece of research this year found the most common things on people's Christmas lists. So what do you think came top of the list? Going on what my family ask for, it's got to be clothes. And, you know, as the kids get older, the clothes on their wish list are so expensive. They're much more expensive than anything I'd wear. 
It was actually money and gift cards, which certainly does not seem like the most creative or exciting thing to open on Christmas morning. But then again, with two in five people throwing away their presents, you can kind of understand why people are requesting that. So there we are. I don't know what I'm going to be asking for this Christmas. I still haven't decided uh, and uh, I'm being badgered already. But I'm afraid that is another quiz, Sarah, where you scored none out of four. I'm not sure I would have you on my pub quiz team. <laughs> well, maybe I'm just lulling you into a false sense of security. Maybe next time I'll just absolutely storm the quiz. But until then, before we go, I need to remind you that this was recorded on the 13th of December and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. This hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealings. And you can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Matt, Sophie, Emma and Mark, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. And thanks to you, Sarah, and you'll be pleased to hear the stench of quavers finally disappeared from our house in March. I certainly don't want Santa bringing any more this year. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye and happy Christmas. 